Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features expert answers to clinician questions on current best practices and emerging applications with immune checkpoint inhibitors in patients with advanced hepatocellular carcinoma. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Current and Future Immunotherapy Approaches for HCC, Evidence, Guidance, and Resources. During this podcast, Dr. Amit Singhal from the UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and Dr. Lipika Goyal from the Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center in Boston, Massachusetts, answer audience questions from a series of live CCO webinars on such important topics as optimal use of the newly approved combination of atezolizumab plus bevacizumab, use of immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy in patients with child PUB liver function, and use of biomarkers to inform treatment for patients with advanced HCC. Please visit the notes for this episode for instructions on how to claim CME credit for listening to this podcast and for a link to the complete program, including a downloadable slide set. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say on this important topic. I think this is a very good question. How many patients are child PUA in routine practice as there's no data for child PUB for the combination of a tezobev? And, you know, I'm with them curious about near practice. I would say probably for the patients who have advanced HCC, it's probably somewhere between 30 and 50% of my practice would be people who have child PUA and potentially could be candidates for a tezobev with the eligibility for it. Um, it's true that currently there are no data for child PUB, and the concern always with child PUB is that patients may have varices, and those would have to be adequately addressed before um, any kind of regimen could be given involving atezolizumab. And so I think um, additional studies need to be done to see if it would be safe, for example, in a B7 population. Because the data that Amit presented for the Checkpoint 040 study with a cohort of nivolumab and child PUB patients, um, that's something that I actually consider in the front line, both because we have the 459 data showing the response rate and the durable responses, and then also the 040 data showing the safety in child PUB7 and B8. So I consider that in the first line. Yeah, I think, um, Lipica, what I'd say is about 40%, I think around the same mark, about 40% of our advanced HEC patients are child PUA, um, you know, with the rest being splattered across the child PUB-C spectrum. Um, I think our approach for um, child PUB, you know, whether we would consider a TESOBEV, I think it would really have to be a very well-selected patient, um, and I wouldn't go any higher than B7. Um, I definitely would not do it in a, in a B8. Um, and even a B7, I would really have to think about it um, in terms of like a, a patient, um, you know, per patient basis. Um, even if they had, um, you know, no varices, I do have a little bit of concern, not so much about the TESO, but more so the BEV. Um, in a child PUB. So, you know, just, um, the risk of, of some complications there. So, um, you know, once again, consider on a, on a per patient basis, if you had a child PUB seven, um, but overall, uh, um, you know, I'd say about 40%, once again, uh, that are child PUA and, and probably eligible for a TESOBEV in the front line. Um, and then for our child PUBs, we do consider, um, you know, the therapies that we have data for in the front line setting. Um, as you mentioned, nivolumab, we went over those data. And then, of course, serafinib, we do have, um, you know, the Gideon study where we have real-world effectiveness data of serafinib in child PUB patients. 
There's another great question about neoadjuvant atezobev. So if someone is unresectable to begin with, we give them atezobev, they are now converted to resectable. Yeah. How long yeah. should we keep them on atezobev before taking them to surgery? Yeah, um, uh, once again, data-free zone, so there's no wrong answer. Um, so, I mean, I think that what I would say is if somebody receives a tezobev or, you know, any other therapy and are downstaged to resectability, um, I would argue that um, you resect them at that point. I don't think that you necessarily need to consolidate them, you know, and say they need to be on a tezobev for X period of, um, you know, s- cycles before I would resect them. Um, you know, I would say that once they're downstaged, I would have them seen by the surgeon and then try to resect them um, on the earlier end rather than the later end. Um, that's that's my personal approach. I think, you know, if, if you can deliver curative therapy, I, I think you should do so. Um, I think the more, um, you know, along those same lines, I think the the potentially more difficult question is, you know, when can you transplant those patients? If you're downstaging somebody and they're eligible, they're within transplant criteria, um, not eligible for resection, how long do you have to be off checkpoint inhibitor therapy to, you know, to undergo transplant? Because, you know, we do know that if you go, uh, if you, Receive checkpoint inhibitor, peri-transplant or post-transplant, there's a higher risk of organ rejection. Um, and so I think all of the transplant centers are coming up with their own protocol um, that are saying patients need to be off of um, checkpoint inhibitor therapy for X number of months, somewhere between three to six months, um, you know, before undergoing transplant. But um, but I, I, once again, in terms of the short answer, I think if somebody's downstaged and is eligible for um uh, curative therapy, I would say you should do that as soon as possible. I don't know. What what do you think? Yeah, I think that's certainly a great approach. And there's some neoadjuvant studies doing exactly that. Like people get two or three cycles of a tezobev and then they go to surgery. Um, you know, the other argument is to try to treat to maximum response or try to treat to sort of capitalize on the gains that we've made, knowing that probably the patients who have responses, they're unlikely to lose their response rapidly. Um, and so is there any benefit in waiting three months or six months to see if you can capitalize on the benefit? Because after surgery, are you going to give adjuvant checkpoint inhibitor or not? Yeah. And is there any role for building immunological memory by giving more checkpoint inhibition? Of course, you could always risk losing the window of resectability if someone has a checkpoint induced inhi- checkpoint inhibitor induced um, adverse event. Yeah. Or if they have a bowel perforation or something with the atezolizumab. So there's certainly harm, potential for harm in waiting um, for optimal response as well. I was just going to say, as with always, you know, it's a shared decision with the um, patient. And also, as you said, I think early referral to surgery and a multidisciplinary conversation is always in order. Yeah, and I think, you know, some of the early data that, you know, NEVO-IPI in terms of the neoadjuvant um, therapy trial, you did see that, that there were some patients who were not able to go to surgery, um, you know, for a you know, host of different reasons. So I, I just think that, you know, these windows, sometimes you never know how short they're going to be. And I, I think it's just you would never want to lose that window. Um, the other component of this is if it's um, downstage on a TESO-BEV is not just the, you know, checkpoint inhibitor, but obviously the BEV. Um, and so, you know, the, the nice thing is by the time somebody, you know, has their imaging, shows a response, sees the surgeon, schedule for the surgery, you have, you're off BEV long enough. Um, but I think if somebody is, 
downstaged to resectability, it's probably worth holding the BEV as they get referred and see the surgeon, just so you have the BEV wash out. Um, and it's not going to cause, you know, increased risk of bleeding um, or complications with the surgery. Absolutely. And that was one of the questions. I tend to use like a four-week washout for bevacizumab, four to six weeks. What do you use for a washout? Yeah, I think that's very reasonable. Yeah. Um, there was another question about what's been your experience with bleeding with using bevacizumab and what are the key risk factors for that? Yeah, um, you know, I think this really highlights the importance of, you know, screening with the upper endoscopy and making sure, once again, if somebody has large varices, somebody has, um, you know, significant portal hypertension, that we don't, um, you know, necessarily put those people on a TESOBEV. Some of the other um, things that are worth noting about the trial, all the pl- patients were required to have a platelet count greater than 75,000. Um, patients who are on daily NSAIDs were not allowed on the trial. So, I mean, I think that patients with other risk factors for, for higher, for, for bleeding, um, you have to be a little bit careful about using um, a TESOBEV. Um, and then even with that careful patient selection, there were patients still on trial who had bleeding. And in clinical practice, I can tell you anyone whose center has started to adopt a TESOBEV, um, you know, they're, they're, if you talk to the GI group, the GI group has been you know, woken up in the middle of the night with some, you know, some patients who are presented with bleeding. So it's happened in our center. It's happened in, you know, many of um, my colleagues' um, centers in terms of um, it does happen. But I, I think, it, it, you know, everything in life is a risk-benefit ratio. So, you know, me waking up and driving to work, I mean, you take the risk of getting into a car accident. So nothing is risk-free. But, I mean, this is really the, the best therapy that we that we have to provide prolonged survival. So I think careful patient selection, not putting this in people who have those risk factors that were identified, um, you know, from the trial. Um, but I think it's still important to talk to your patients that this is a possibility. And if they have signs of bleeding, they need to come in the hospital. Yeah, I totally agree, Amit. And I think that last point you made is really important, which is just the education piece for patients when they're on these drugs, for people to have a low threshold to contact us if they have any signs of bleeding <coughs> reviewing the ICI-related side effects and encouraging people to call us early if they have any issues. Um, Another one of the questions was around how do we use subgroup analyses for the trials to inform who we deliver drugs to? So if a subgroup analysis shows that a population of patients is unlikely to benefit from a Tezobev or from any of the other therapies, how does that affect your clinical practice in terms of offering a therapy to patients? Yeah, I, I, I tend not to overinterpret subgroup analyses. Um, so I don't look, you know, once again, subgroup analyses are more exploratory in my mind, um, in the sense of, do you see a signal for, um, something working or not working? I think the best example is actually ramaciramab, right? Mm-hmm. So ramaciramab was evaluated in the REACH trial, did not have a benefit in all comers, but in subgroup analyses was found to have a benefit in high AFP. But it's not to rely on that subgroup analysis and say, like, well, we found this in subgroup analysis. You know, um, you know, Eli Lilly then did a completely separate trial from those data to to prove that, um, you know, ramaciramab is is beneficial in in high AFP patients. And so the same thing with um, when I interpret, you know, for example, I think the, the question that I see here is the Nash patients with the Tizobev. Um, you know, I, I think that I don't overinterpret those subgroup analyses unless I really think there's a reason why it wouldn't work. 
And I'm like, oh, like, let's get more data as the, as this rolls out to see if there's some reason for, for me not to use it. Um, I don't use etiology as a selection factor for atezobev in clinical practice based on that subgroup analysis. Um, but it is something that I think we need more data from, you know, um, post-marketing data to, 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 to show, um, benefit in that, in that subgroup. That's my approach. What do you think? Yeah, likewise, it's just too compelling of a regimen to um, not offer to patients. But in general, I practice very similar to you. Do I don't overinterpret subgroup analyses, but more use them as hypothesis generating for thinking about next steps. And along those same lines, someone asked about PDL one expression, and you know, in the Tezobev study, how often did we see PDL one expression, and how do we think about PDL one expression in HCC? Yeah, um, I wish that it, it was better. I mean, I wish that we had a biomarker to to really say like this is a patient who should receive atezolumab, um, but so far we haven't really seen PDL one pan out in, in HCC. Um, I, I do think that there's probably issues with PDL one expression. I mean, like you take a look at how this is evaluated across different tumor types and um, different uh, drug regimens. You know, you use different assays, you use different cell. You know, like I think it's just the type of thing where it's all of it's being assessed very different at different thresholds. So sometimes hard to interpret these data. Sometimes it makes me wonder if we know what we're doing with PDL one expression. But you know, that rant aside, I think that um, right now, um, you know, from a clinical perspective. We don't have PDL1 as a uh, as a selection biomarker for any um, IO therapy uh, in HCC. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, interestingly, in renal cell carcinoma, PDL1 expression was predictive of prolonged PFS for atezobev compared to sinitinib. Yeah. Um, so hopefully, at some point, we will have whether it's PDL1 or something else. Hopefully, we'll have some sort of predictive biomarker to help us understand who's in that 25 to 30% of patients who have responses to atezobev and how can we convert the people who are not developing responses to responders? Yeah. Yeah. Um, another th- question we talked about atezobev second line, and I think that that's something that we can consider after TKI therapy. I don't know, um, Lipica, if you have thoughts about that. Um, I know that I mentioned that we do consider it in select patients. Have you thought about it in some of your patients who were on serafinib progressed and do you consider a tezobab second line? Yeah, absolutely. It's just such an effective therapy that it would be hard to not bring it up with patients and discuss it. I mean, obviously there's the lack of data to support it, but, you know, data takes time to catch up um, after new data are released. And so all of these patients who, you know, as you mentioned, were on serafinib while the trial was ongoing before it was FDA approved, it's certainly something worth talking about with patients. Great. One other point I wanted to bring up that one of the questions was around were people with esophageal varices allowed on atezobev? And that's a very important question. Yes, they were. They just had to have treatment per clinical standards at the institution after they were diagnosed with um, varices. And so just because you have varices doesn't mean that you're never going to be a candidate for atezobev. They just need to be well-managed. And the other point I wanted to make about varices is that there are two ways patients with HCC get varices. One is because they have obstruction, that's sinusoidal obstruction, and that's the cirrhosis that Amit talked about, where there is a 10 to 20% risk of um, varices in patients with child PUA. But then patients can also have pre-sinusoidal causes of cirrhosis, which is portal vein invasion. And HCC is a disease that does invade the portal vein. 
And so if you have a patient who, you know, had an endoscopy a while ago, but you see that they have portal vein invasion, it's a reason to assess to see if they have varices because this can lead to increased portal hypertension and these um, varices that are at risk for bleeding. So something to, important to consider. So I completely agree. And so I, I think the, the idea that any varices is not an exclusion is critical. It really is, you know, uncontrolled or high risk varices. Uh, another um, question here comes up, mo why modern ongoing phase three trials have lumvatinib or serafinib as a control arm, despite a tezobev as modern standard of care? And it really is because they started the, the, the trials before um, a tezobev became available. So it is kind of a funny thing because it unfortunately doesn't allow comparisons to, to tezobev, but it's really the fact that they started the agent, started the trial um, before atezobev came around. Um, any phase three trials that are getting designed now would be done with, you know, atezobev or some of these new agents as the standard of care arm moving forward. Lipka, do you want to take the next few um, questions? Yeah, uh, sure. And then go from there. Th Absolutely. Thank you. Um, the question about bevacizumab and ramaciramab, um, bev and ram are act on the VEGF pathway. What are your thoughts about using ram after bev um, in a patient with an AFP greater than 400? You know, really hard to say they are in the same pathway. So it kind of begs the same question as to whether you would use Nevo or Pembro alone after tezolizumab. Um, I think if there weren't additional other good options, um, be very reasonable to choose ramaciramab in the setting of having multiple options, you know, it's something that we certainly can consider and it's an option because we don't know that um, it does or does not have efficacy. But I would say that if someone has options for tyrosine kinase inhibitors, which have VEGF and multiple, VEGFR and multiple other t uh, tyrosine kinases, it's reasonable to consider alternatives as well. And as I mentioned, clinical trials. Um, is there any drug therapy that can be given to reduce the effects of immunotherapy, especially on the skin area? Um, you know, seeing a dermatologist or seeing any specialist when people develop side effects from immunotherapy is really important. Um, there are topical agents that we can certainly use for rashes, and we work closely with our dermatologists about this, but it really depends on what organ is being affected and what kind of treatments. We do a lot of supportive care Steroids are the main thing that we use as first line, but then we have um, additional therapies if steroids are not effective. Do we recommend uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors for HCC with portal vein thrombosis? Um, yes, certainly. Those patients have BCLC stage C disease, and they very much were a part of the um, Atezobev trial. So I think that they're very fair game for being able to get this. Um, is viral hepatitis a good biomarker in being able to select which patients are going to benefit from, um, from checkpoint inhibitors? You know, in the various studies that have been done, there have not been significant differences between patients who have immune check, people who have viral hepatitis and people who don't. So I think right now we don't have specific evidence that they do or do not work in specific subpopulations. Um, so uh, I would not use that to make decisions. In terms of the subgroup analysis in Imbrave, the way I think about subgroup analyses is that they're hypothesis generating, 
but they're not powered to, for us to be able to make clinical decision making. So while the subgroup analyses in Embrave 150 are interesting, I think that we would um, not hold back on this regimen in certain subgroups until we have more robust data. Um, and then what dose of steroid can be administered? One mg per kg. Um, so not the 40 milligrams of prednisone, but really starting with one milligram per kg and then tapering slowly. Um, it's a big problem because you need to first control infectious disease, metabolic problems, and finally liver damage. It's very complicated. Um, I'm guessing that's related to um, the steroid dosing. And yeah, it is complicated to be able to treat all of the different issues related to HCC and cirrhosis. As Dr. Single had said, it's a disease within a disease and you want to be able to manage all the cirrhosis complications and also the HCC related issues. And um, you do see these metabolic issues. And uh, also when you give patients steroids, when they get immune checkpoint related issues, you know, that can be challenging in a patient with cirrhosis because if they have water retention, if they develop hyperglycemia, um, if they develop other issues, um, it can take some time, but we often manage concurrently with our hepatologists to make sure that we're optimizing our care for our patients. Well, great. I think we answered a lot of the questions here. Yeah, no, this is really exciting. Thanks. Um, thanks again for everyone who um, joined. Um, and uh, once again, I, I would personally like to thank um, uh, Lipica for, for being my co-host here. Um, uh, always a pleasure to, to do these with her. Thank you. Likewise, I want to thank um, all of you for joining today and being a part of this conversation. As Ahmed said from the very beginning, you know, the last couple of years has seen a revolution in the way we treat advanced HCC. Of course, we always want to be able to screen patients and catch them early, but now we're able to have more hope for patients in the clinic. And we look forward to partnering with our colleagues in different specialties to make this a reality for patients. I want to take, thank Amit, as always, for being a pleasure to work with for these different kinds of um, projects. And I want to thank CCO for hosting this uh, and educating the community. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Single and Dr. Goyle. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to claim CME credit and view the full program, Current and Future Immunotherapy Approaches for HCC, evidence, guidance, and resources, and to download the slide set associated with this discussion from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the links in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.